1: And which i'm actually happy for i would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history
0: whether you're lesbian gay bi transgender or whatever love is love shout it out to the world
1: the michelle meow show your a through z covering the lgbt lmnop and everyone in between show and now here's your host michelle meow
3: Welcome! Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday in early November. Uh, Thank you for bearing with me. I have been sick, so I've been out of the studio. uh, But hopefully you've been enjoying some of the great interviews that we've been replaying. So, happy Tuesday. Like I said again, uh, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is not here with us. Um, We're starting a new program, and it starts this Thursday. So, his his co-hosting with me... Uh, we'll begin this Thursday. We're going to cover the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. For today, we have a special guest, and I'm very, very excited to be speaking with him. Uh, he's on the phone with us. He's the director of The Normal Heart, which is playing right now at uh, uh, in San Francisco at Theater Rhinoceros, and that is John Fisher. John, welcome to the program.
4: Hey, thanks for having me, Michelle.
3: Uh, I've seen The Normal Heart on HBO. I also have seen uh, the play. I'm very excited to have it back here in San Francisco. But many people who might be tuning in for the first time here on Progressive Voices Network may not know about The Normal Heart, which is uh, Larry Kramer's play. If you wouldn't mind just giving us a very quick, brief history of The Normal Heart, that would be awesome.
4: Oh, okay. Well, it's uh, the story of Larry Kramer and him getting involved in AIDS activism in the early 80s and his struggles and how the government wasn't helping. Nobody was acknowledging the disease. People were dying. And he became more and more involved in AIDS activism to the point where he was uh, starting protests, marches, picketing. And he really got the government moving on supporting queer people who were dying of this horrible disease. So it's the first few years of the AIDS crisis. and At the same time, he was falling in love. So it's also a love story and very, very moving, tragic, uh, inspiring play for all of us who believe in activism. I think activism is a big issue now because of uh, queer voices, which are still being suppressed, uh, members of the LGBT community, the transgender community. Activism is always an aspect of our struggle. And this play is the first great queer activism play, and it's, 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 it's really like a cry of outrage and demand for respect and um, mm-hmm. going back to the AIDS generation.
3: Mm-hmm yeah and just staying on that you know it, uh, the normal heart has been playing for for many years um, and right. and there's no real uh, you know perfect year for it I think that it's needed and necessary every single year and just uh-huh. uh, one to be a reminder but at the same time two education and informing the rest of our community of, of what happened within our community and, and so right. um, you know it basically to tell stories of our lives but in this year I feel is, a very important year to continue on these types of uh, storytelling or at least informing our community of such stories. And the reason being, as you mentioned it earlier, you know, the, uh, the, the, normal heart also has a lot of autobiographical moments of, of, uh, you know, our community and also the government's ignorance or ignoring of a situation that impacted our community. And I just kind of feel like in 2017, there are sentiments of that happening, like turning a blind eye. What do you think?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the tra- murder of transgenders is, uh, is, is up this year. 2017 was a horrible year for transgenders being murdered. And for there not being appropriate re- legislation and finding the people who were perpetuating these crimes. And I just think that outrage and demands for respect are always key to the queer community. I don't think that the, the work is ever done. Um, Back when this play was written, it was really that, you know, like gay acceptance supposedly had happened, the sexual revolution had happened, it was legal, but suddenly I think everybody who was queer realized that, in fact, there was still a lot of hate. And we seem to go through these generational things. It was AIDS activism, then it was marriage equality activism, and now it's transgender activism. But the fight is never finished in this country. There is still a lot of disapproval, hate, um, government ignorance, uh, lack of visibility, and I think that this play is—it is, always gets back to the need to restate our position and our need for equality, and even if that takes us into some areas where we're just like screaming for attention, mm-hmm. we have to do it. That's what Larry Kramer's all about. I mean, he's 82 now, um, and he's—he's he's as angry as ever. So- I, I was just going
3: to ask if you have any temperature reading at all of. Uh- how larry kramer feels about our current political uh, situation it's
2: it's, it's
4: a mess i mean in a way it's great for him because i think it keeps him alive i think he just you know it gets him up in the morning if you go on facebook he's just like he's still he writes only in caps the cap lock has been on his computer for 40 years um he only writes with exclamation marks he is outraged about everything about trump about everything and so I think that this play is—it's like the New Testament for him. It's his testament. It's his, you know, book of John. It's his—it's his his cry for 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 demand for equality. And he he hasn't changed at all. And this play is all about outrage. And it's also about the consequences. I mean, the character, the Larry Kramer character, certainly there's there's some blowback on him. At some point, you know, you have to you have to stop screaming and, and work with people. And the play is about that also. It's like, Mm -hmm. finally, the government starts paying attention. And when the government does pay attention, you do have to work with them. You can't just scream at them all the time. Mm -hmm. And the the play is sort of about that, too. It's about somebody learning that there is moderation, that that, that you do have to listen. At some point, you have to stop screaming and listen, because you have to start working with people. But you have to get their attention first. I'm not sure that that's happened yet in our Mm -hmm. culture, in all aspects of, of LGBT equality.
3: You know the the normal heart. Uh, people can't forget, who won't forget the HIV AIDS epidemic and how it impacted the right. LGBTQ yeah. community. And and you're right in a lot of ways. Larry Kramer's you know screaming for attention that we matter too and we exist as a, exactly. a community. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk about like just how that screaming still is necessary. Uh, But also the listening part. But I think that, you know, what we're screaming about is different. Sure, uh, you know, HIV AIDS is now not considered an epidemic. And in some cities like San Francisco, there are major efforts to, you know, reduce infections to zero. Um, yeah, and, which is incredible. But at the same time, you know, when we're talking about like the loss of, of health care, for example, I think right. that, that has a tremendous negative impact for the most vulnerable who are HIV positive. And those are some yeah. of the things that we should be screaming about, right? Yep. Well, I
4: mean, HIV drugs are outrageously expensive, and they're not available to people who do not have access to very fancy healthcare. I mean, it, it, HIV drugs are very, very expensive, and there is still an inequality in HIV treatment. And, uh, sort of, the undervalued members of our community who live on the fringes are still exposed to this disease. And just because they want to live their own definition of a sexual life, which is consensual, it's not illegal, they're exposed to this disease, and then they can't get treatment for it. So it's, the, the fight around HIV has not been solved. Larry Kramer will, will rant about this forever, that it, it, it's still treatments are still not affordable to everybody who is exposed to the disease. Um, you know, activism has, of course, shifted greatly to getting equality for people who are in a a broader definition of the LGBT community, and that's, uh, you know, that's, you know, so so, so the fight is still for HIV equality, um, but there is still... Uh, there, there are there are large fights that are looming for us now. Of course, of a different nature. I've been inspired to see. There's a lot of young people in the cast, people in their 20s, and I've been inspired to see that they they now get education. When we talked about HIV, it's like, oh yeah, it's part of sex ed. And I thought that was very inspiring. Mm. And, uh, their exposure to it is not as something negative and horrible, and we're not going to talk about it. You know, because early in the crisis, you couldn't talk to students about it. You couldn't talk. You couldn't go into the schools and talk about it. The parents would get outraged. They, they they interpreted it as sort of saying you should be gay you know like it was proselytizing for gayness and mm-hmm. it felt like it was russia you know but now it's a, it, it is part of sex education and i think that that's important and that things have changed for the better with regards to people's openness about it of course that's only in certain parts of the country and other parts of the country things are a mess still but that's you know what are you going to
3: do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah that was my next question is just kind of getting your thoughts on younger lgbtq people and you know their um not so much relationship but like knowledge and how they feel their emotions about um what happened to our community it's obviously different right i mean you can still talk to a lot of people who went through the 80s and the 90s who watched their friends die or who took care of their friends um who who can't i mean say a word without crying and uh, things things yeah. have changed but but hearing you uh, that's positive, like it's not like what some people feel, like we've been desensitized almost, that oh okay, that's part of our history, but no.
4: yeah yeah. I mean, no, God love young people if you tell them something that's like HIV if, if they don't understand something, they get on their phones if they, they look it up, they go to Wikipedia I mean, you know, I, I hear all this whining from people my age about, oh, young people, all they care about is their phones and my response is, thank God mm-hmm. the phone is like You know, thank God they're on their phones. I mean, when I was their age, there wasn't any phones. Everybody was, like, pointing at each other. Oh, you're gay? Why are you gay? I mean, you know, everybody was too wrapped up in each other's business. And now it's like you say something to them like HIV, Larry Kramer. If if, if they don't know a name, they look it up. I mean, it's like like the babysitter. They've got something to, to occupy them all the time. They're never bored. And they're so much better informed, I think. Than my generation was. There aren't all these questions. It's like if if they have a question, they get an answer from the phone, from social media, from something. And so I think, uh, I, and I think that that's very inspiring. They're mm-hmm. very open-minded. They're more and more liberal. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, because they have so much more information. I mean, how can you not be liberal if you have more information? I don't know. Is the South blacked out? I mean, does Arkansas like have like? You know, is it like China, like they control that? I I don't understand how people can be so ill informed in this country.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, you know, it's just like it's it's amazing this parts of this country. It's like how how do you not have the knowledge? Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what are you looking at on your phone? I mean, just like boring stuff. I mean, I, I, I don't get it. Well,
2: it's, called fake, it? <laughs> it's no, called fake news. It's called news. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
4: It's just like um, you know, and I believe in fake news too. I think that a lot of news is bullshit. But then just read a bunch of stuff. Read five accounts of something, and then mm-hmm. you will get the real story. Mm-hmm. So, I am inspired by young people. Um, yeah. I think I think that they I think that they they, they, they are they are the well obviously they're the hope of the future. But I think it's it's a good hope.
3: Right, right. Well, let's talk about your own, you know, personal relationship as director of The Normal Heart. Uh, we're very excited. It's here in San Francisco right now at yeah. the Gateway Theater. Um, uh, but yeah, like, w- you know, what's personal for you? Why pick up this project? And, and of course, you know, working with Larry Kramer must be uh, just a, a, an incredible journey.
4: He's, he's amazing. The first time I read it was when it came out in 1985, and I just couldn't stop turning the pages. And I thought at the time, oh you know, this is just a great play about AIDS, but now I think it's just a great play. It reads to me like any great, great play. Who's a great Virginia Woolf, The Doll's House, King Lear. It's just, it's like a page turner. And I think what I love about it, quite aside from what it's about, is how well it's written. It's like every scene is exciting. Every scene's like an argument or a romance or uh, a death scene. I mean, every single scene is like a little play and each play is, it's incredibly moving in a different way. And, and my respect for it as, as polemic, as a piece of political theater, has, uh, has remained. But now what I love about it is just how exciting it is as, as theater. And, you know, we, we, we play it very fast. I mean, the pace of our production is very quick. It's like an, it's like an action film. It's like boom dee boom de boom dee boom Because I think that that's what the crisis felt like. like. It felt like it was just like spinning out of control. Like people are dying and nothing's happening and we have to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And it's like Rambo, it's like, here's a problem, solve it. And mm-hmm. you have to solve it quickly. And at one point, um, uh, the Larry Kramer character says, uh, somebody says to him, and he just wait a minute. He says, no, we can't wait a minute. Time is not on our side. Don't tell me to calm down. Don't tell me to wait a minute. And that's what I love about this play, is it never waits.
2: Mm-hmm. It's just
4: along. It's like a runaway train. It's like at some point the track is going to run out, and this thing's going to fly off into the middle of Chicago and start wrecking houses. Or you know, it's like the plane's going to run out of gas. We better find a, a place to land. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just an incredibly exciting piece of theater. And I think sometimes gay uh, AIDS plays are kind of sad mm. or they're kind of slow. They're about they're about death and loss. And this is very much about death and loss, but it's. It, it, more than anything, it's about solve the problem, right. solve the problem, and um, in that way, I, I really do feel like it's like it's like a, it's like an action movie or a, or a thriller. It's like how do we get to this point where somebody listens, and then how do we get them to listen, and then how do we get them to take action? So directing it, I you know I've always emphasized you know momentum, pace, urgency. Um, even the love scenes, it's like people want love. They don't want love tomorrow. They want it now. And, they, you know, they need to, like, you know, assert themselves. And I think that that was very much about the early uh, queer rights movement was, you know, we've been without love. We've been without sex. We've been without, you know, being able to do these things that everybody else got to do. And then we had to make up time. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know we, had to, we had to catch up. We had to mm-hmm. catch up with the normal, which wasn't going to happen slowly. We need to do it fast.
3: Right. Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Miao Show right after these messages. Babe,
0: I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family
3: is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com.
1: The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
3: When, you know, when you read uh, historical news articles or even read about Larry Kramer, I think that the the description, some people would say, would would be that Larry was perfect at capturing anger, you know, anger yeah, within the yeah. gay community. And so for you as the director of The Normal Heart in this play, you know, I'm, I'm sure of it, that that emotion is at the, the heart or at the center of this play. And, you know, no. kind of talk to us about capturing that and, and with the actors. And, and also maybe even that might elicit some emotions from the audience and you get a new audience every time.
4: Well, I think that uh, I think we can all relate to being angry about something, and I think that our culture teaches us don't be angry. It, it, it's weak to show anger. Um, I think that I think what people love about theater is they get to go and see things, they get to go and see characters do things that they can't do. If you're at work and you're angry at your boss, you can't really yell at your boss
2: mm-hmm. because you'll
4: lose your job or you'll lose his respect or you know whatever. And if you go and see a play. I think what the audience responds to is, is getting to see people unleash emotions that they can't unleash, in, you know, in their in their daily lives. And so, it's, it's, you know, it's 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 a play of arguments. It's a play of people screaming at each other. It's a play of, but it's also a play about romance. And we see, you know, that's another thing that we can't really, you know, you can't really talk about, you know, romance and sex. These are sort of things that are supposed to be discreet, and we're not supposed to always be talking about them. You know, but again, in, in a play, you can watch people fall in love. You can watch people, you know, kids. You can watch, you know, you, there, there's a voyeuristic aspect to theater, and so I, 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 I never shy away from that in in its play. It's if there's anger, there's anger, mm-hmm. and you know, it's like people people get angry with each other, and they yell at each other, and they demand, you know, satisfaction from each other, and that is, you know, it's like. The extremes, I think, of theater are what people love about it. They love to go and, just as when they go to a movie, they like to see people jump off a building and fall nine stories and not die. I mean, these are things you can't do. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so in in Normal Heart, you get to see people do things that you can't do. You get to see people show their anger. And you get to see people reconcile and make up. And sometimes we can't do that either. Sometimes we go 10 years not speaking to somebody. We're so angry at them. But in this play, it's like, I'm angry at you, but you are a human being too. And I love you. And, you know, we hug, we kiss. You know, so you get this. I, I think it really is living vicariously, this play. It's like seeing uh, live on stage, mm-hmm. seeing people go through things that we can't always let ourselves go through. And and, and for two hours, you go on this sort of emotional roller coaster, which I think is, it, it, you know, it, 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 as Aristotle said, it purges us. Of these, of these, of these feelings, it makes us feel like, wow, we had an emotional experience that we didn't have to personally go through, that isn't going to do damage to us personally, but we got to witness.
2: Right, and
4: that's right. what I always emphasize in directing the play: is is go for it, go for it, show it, show it, show it.
3: Right. Well, like I said earlier, you know, it's not just a, a play that you see once. I mean, it has become almost tradition for me as a person in the LGBTQ community. So I got a couple questions for you before we let you yes. go. Um, and so bringing it back to, you know, this year, 2017, what's happening politically. I think that the Normal Heart, the play, confirms and reaffirms, you know, these um, uh, characteristics of of us as people as LGBTQ people are in the fight, and that you know, if you're questioning dissent of the government, for example, this is a uh, this is a, a testimony of how we can unite, we can engage, we can be together, yes, um, in absolutely. fighting back, and also this whole idea of like resistance, and and so you know, I just wanted to hear what you had to say about it as someone bringing well, this project now here. I I think
4: uh, in my lifetime, there has never been a president that radicalized uh, the uh, American left more than uh, Reagan until Trump. I think from Reagan to Trump, uh, I think Reagan provoked us, those of us who were queer and liberal. He really provoked us and upset us. And Trump is right there with him, maybe even more so. Trump, you know, Reagan at least seemed somewhat lucid. There seems to be a plan to his villainy. Trump just seems to be all over the place. It's like scattershot. It's terrifying. And I think that uh, this play is even more relevant than when it was written in many ways because of the the radicalism of the American right at this moment, which seems to be both uh, cruelly dominant and also completely unfocused, which is sort of terrifying because there doesn't seem to be a plan. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem to be a program. It just seems to be like random, like, you know, let's try this, let's try that, let's try it. scattershot. So I, I really do feel like this is, the play was written in, the big villain in the play is Reagan. He's the big villain. He keeps coming up as, as somebody, he wouldn't even say the word AIDS. He keeps coming up as the person who wouldn't help with the AIDS crisis. And I think that we have another president who's who's even taken the the, the radicalism of the right a step further than Reagan. So I think that this is an extremely relevant play. The the, the issues that face our community right now are just... (sighs) We're in a precarious position, and we we, we, we can't wait around to sort of cross our fingers and hope that it all works out or hope that this maniac ignores us or doesn't notice us. I think it's inevitable that he will. If only to grab attention. I mean, he's already gone after transgenders. And when he was running for office, he didn't go after transgenders. The whole bathroom issue, he said, you can use the bathrooms at Trump Tower. I don't care who goes in the bathrooms at Trump Tower. And then he's in office, and all of a sudden it's like, to grab attention, he wants to persecute transgenders in the military. So this man is not to be trusted. Um, and, and worse than that, he, he's unpredictable. Right. Uh, which makes him more dangerous than Reagan. I, I really do feel that way. Um, so I think the play is very relevant. I think 2017 is its year. And, and you know, it was done on Broadway in 2011. It was done as an HBO movie in 2015. I mean, I think it, it, its relevance has, has reasserted itself in the last uh, few years. Um, you know, 2011 it won the Tony Award as best play, you know, 25 years after it was written. So it, it, it sort of... Uh, you know, it's, it's like its importance has grown. Its importance has grown, mm-hmm. um, even as time has passed.
3: Go see Theater Rhinoceros is the normal heart by Larry Kramer. It's playing now until the 25th at the Gateway Theater, so don't be confused. It's formerly the Eureka Theater. The Eureka
4: Theater, it's the Gateway, the Eureka. Both, both names work. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to know more about it, you can read about it on our website. Uh, rhino.org, T-H-E-R-H-I-N-O.org. And you can also buy tickets there. Um, and you can buy tickets at one 800 And we're there till November 25th.
3: We've been speaking with John Fisher, the director of The Normal Heart. And, John, thank you so much for bringing The Normal Heart here to San Francisco. My last question for you before we let you go yes. is, uh, you know, so San Francisco has changed drastically, or, or you know, it's changed. Cities change all the time, urban big cities. But but yeah. as of right now, it it has changed in terms of you know even the LGBTQ demographic. Um, who do you think needs to see this play? You know now today as as uh, a San Francisco um, goes. Well, I, 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 you know
4: I think um, I think anybody who's sort of questioned uh, the relevance. Of queer outrage, you know the, the the necessity of growing as queer people need to see it. If you, if you, if if you're emerging, if you're queer now and you're and you're sort of emerging into the community, I think it's a great play for you to see because I think that when I was young and coming out, I didn't really know. I mean, the, the, the gay community, the gay world, seemed very monolithic to me and kind of scary, and I didn't know where I would fit in. And I think the play really is about the inclusiveness of the gay world. And I think that I especially love it when young people come and see it because. I feel like it, 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 it makes them feel like it's okay, you know? This, this, this community embraces everybody, and it's not something that's exclusionary. It's not saying, like, you know, you can't belong. You can belong. We are about belonging. I also like it if people, the yeah, it, who are somewhat older, and people who think, you know, like, oh, what are these people screaming about? I mean, what's the big deal? I, I just think, I have friends my age who, you know, I think have sort of settled into a suburban lifestyle, and sort of feel like, yeah, you know, the fights are fought. And I think, no, they're not. This is just as relevant, and I think you'll hear a lot of relevance in this. You know, and we have all sorts of ways to come in to see the play. You said San Francisco has changed. Yeah, it has changed. It's like uh, Pieta Terra City. It's like for rich people. Mm-hmm. And we, we try not to make our theater about rich people. I mean, if you go back to Broadway or something, it's like $200 a ticket. Hamilton's $1,000 a ticket. That's not what our theater's about. Um, if, if you want to see our play... Get a hold of me. Go on our website. If you don't have money, we will... I want you to see it. I want you to see the play. It's not about... This is not theater that's about making money. I mean, of course it is. It's a mm-hmm. business, but it's, we want people to come see it. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. We don't want you to feel like you're... You can't. We have all sorts of deals. And we're on Gold Star and half-price ticket places, but also, you know, we just like people to come. We like all kinds of people to come, you know? Our last show was like a was like going to a gospel church. The audience was like shouting through the whole show, talking back to the stage. It was wonderful. And so it's like, that's another thing about live theater that I think is important is that anybody can come, any, any economic background can come and you can do whatever you want. You can't like throw things at us, but if you, if you agree with something, you can say, yeah, sing it. You know, let's hear it. Yeah. You know, it's like, right. you, you know, you're there, you're living. The people on stage are living. Every performance is different.
3: John, thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show and sharing the normal heart with us.
4: Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure.
3: Get tickets at therhino.org. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating... Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to
0: you by Weatherford BMW.
5: Babe, I think
0: we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start?
3: <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com
0: for all your event production needs.
1: And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
3: Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, make sure you check out The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer, directed by John Fisher, and you can get tickets online at theaterrhino.org. Our next guest is by phone, also someone that I can call a friend of the Michelle Miao Show, and she has been on the show before. She is an award-winning broadcast and online journalist. Uh, She's also a blogger at lifeafterdawn.com. Like I said, an award-winning journalist, but also has quite a story. I've been following her story recently, and it really really tugged at me from an emotional perspective you know, side and there's something that I've been afraid of talking about in this it's this um, subject of, you know, abuse, abuse of power within our own communities. And I think that in a year like twenty seventeen, with the political struggle struggles that we're facing with a president who seems to already have made a lot of damage within our own community It's very easy now to just stand up and start talking about some of these situations of abuse because the impact isn't. It's not. It's not as easy as just saying like, "Okay, well, I'm sorry about that, and we'll do better." Because the impact, the ramifications, the consequences of such abuse of power has. Such a profound negative impact on our lives when we're marginalized or we're members of the LGBTQ community in a society that already rejects us. And so Dawn's story is very, very important to talk about the abuse of power within the LGBTQ community. Dawn, welcome to the Michelle Miao Show.
6: I'm glad to be back. And I'm a listener. Not a first-time caller,
2: <laughs> yeah. But
6: I'm I'm very proud to be able to share my story with you. I haven't spoken to anyone else about this on the record, and um, the reason I decided to hold the story um, as as something I just sort of like you know didn't want to name names was because I didn't see the upside of it. I figured those who knew who I was talking about and the powerful people who I was writing about, they knew, and the rest of the community would just have to put it together on their own. It wasn't my place to start, you know, any kind of, like, war. But as Mm -hmm. I wrote today, you know what? People who think that I'm burning a bridge, these folks put me out on the bridge, cut off my only way of exit, and then handed me a book of matches. Mm -hmm. So there really wasn't much of a choice. And five months in, I I felt like it's really time to sort of, you know, come clean and and tell everything I can tell.
3: So let's, you know, Come clean, but be clean in terms of uh, those who might be tuning in for the first time here on Progressive Voices Network, and um, share your story. and And you had actually written about uh, this abuse as a journalist, as a, a you know a woman who was one of the first. Trans journalists to come out in the public eye as far as, you know, sharing your story, your personal transition during that time. And so I want to make sure that our listeners understand, you know, you've you cover big, big uh, subjects for our community. You've written for large large networks, and even, um, you know, part of your article on Medium today, Medium.com, mentioned that yeah, you were part of you know, even uh, breaking news, like the interview with Caitlyn Jenner that you did for The Advocate. So, you know, let's back up. Um, the first time mm-hmm. I had heard about the abuse that you were experiencing as a journalist at an LGBTQ publication, by the way, it was anonymous.
6: Yeah, I decided not to name them. Um, this, this is all because, you know, when I first came out in 2013, which even though it's only four years ago, it was like the prehistoric days of trans people coming out. Um, it was before Laverne Cox, before Caitlin Jenner, um, uh, Janet Mock. Chaz Bono was like the only really big name in our community, and Laverne was, was out but not a big name. And I was the first uh, transgender journalist in network television news. So I came out at ABC News. It was, you know, tabloid fodder. I had reporters hiding in bushes outside my house and going up and down the block asking people if they knew the tranny next door. It was a really dark time. Um, After a couple of months and some mental health issues, ABC finally decided, you know what, we've had enough of the tabloid headlines, and they fired me for so-called performance issues. I got a job at the Advocate. I started as a writer and I worked my way up to news editor. And like at ABC, I was the first staff person uh, who identifies as trans to be on the team. And it was a great honor. I I loved working at The Advocate. I had to leave for personal reasons for family issues. And I quickly transitioned to a job over at LGBTQ Nation, which is owned by Queer Teeth. I was uh, a writer there and also moved up to the assistant editor job. Like those other two jobs before me, the first transgender editor. I wasn't staff, I was freelance, but I felt like I was in a position that no other trans journalist in um, the LGBT media had achieved. Um, I really felt a responsibility. I felt like I um, represented us in a way that I hope people saw as a positive. And then after about a year and two months, after being um, given pretty much you know, a, a, an open uh, invitation to, to cover our community, um, it suddenly came down after a week of filling in as the editor, being the, the, running the website and, and breaking some exclusive news and doing, I thought, a really good job. They told us they were budget cuts, and they had to fire two people. The irony was, as I wrote in September, they fired the only two trans people on the team, and I was one of them. And I didn't want to name them at the time because, well, first of all, it just didn't seem to suit anyone's purpose to make it a... Uh, you know, a pointing fingers piece. But I did want people to know that it's not like it's how do you how do you have a budget cut that only affects transgender people? We face incredible discrimination. We face incredible economic um, uh, disadvantages. Right. And to take the only two people on the team who have the hardest row to hoe and make them the target of budget cuts, why not spread that around? Why is it that um, you know of, of a team of 15 people or so, and 13 of them, 12 of them being uh, gay and one bisexual, and two trans. Why would you, why would you make the trans people the only targets of the, of the cuts? It just didn't seem to be fair. And that's why I decided to tell this story. The reason I'm telling it again now is because it's been five months to today. Five months and no job. I'm uh, mm-hmm. still writing. I write for uh, a couple of publications, including NBC News. Um, I'm very fortunate to have those opportunities. Um, I write for The Advocate. I've got a piece that they're editing right now. I think it'll be a very big piece. I, I write for a few other publications that I'm very happy to write for. And um, it's just not enough. It's, it's right. piecemeal. This, yeah. this is my steady gig. And you know what? Just a little backstory. I'm I'm a single mom. I have three kids. And if this was just me having a tough time, you know, we all have a tough time. But I've got three kids who depend on me for everything, and I've got to support them. And I, I just can't be silent anymore.
3: Thank you for that, and that's where I want to go with this. It's it's more about you know the impact, and and we need to talk about these impacts on our lives uh, financially or economically, at least when. Activists or LGBTQ uh, organizations and and all these mega organizations that are fed off of the backs of like corporate sponsorships, for example, right? Talk about the issues that impact our lives, especially the transgender community. We need to also be very careful about how within the community we're impoverishing our own community members in a lot of ways. So for example, it's like, You've got an LGBTQ, you know, media network and in your article and talking about, you know, spending large amounts of money for meetings or going on these, you know, types of vacations or non or working um working a vacations. Business retreat, they call but, it, yeah, yeah. A business retreat or whatnot. And when you've got, you know, transgender people, let's not even, you know, talk about the writers, the 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 folks who, you know, contribute to Uh, For the cause. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, when we have people who are absolutely um, hungry, who are starving for a chance in life, and we do something like this, we uh, let go of our only transgender writer, and, and also put them in position where they are not able to get basic resources, that doesn't only impact you as a person, that impacts your entire family, that impacts your community, and then it also sends a message to the rest of our community of where our priorities are in terms of providing resources for our most vulnerable. So that's why I wanted to talk to you about your experience.
6: Not only that, but also it's a very difficult time to be in the media right now uh, we've had two websites shut down because they unionized in New York. And the, 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 the people who unionized, voted to unionize in New York cost the jobs of people all across the country because the, the rich guy who owns these two websites decided, well, I'm not going to run a website that has a union in it. So 100, 100, more than 100 people are out of work. Other websites have been letting people go by the hundreds because they're pivoting the video and they're seeing that there are opportunities for them to trim their budgets. And it's also that time of year where um, the budgets are very tight, and by trimming the bottom line, they feel that they can do better for their investors, for their um, for their own bank, po- their own pockets, and, and bank accounts. So the media itself right now is consolidating. On top of that, it's a different media than the mainstream media. The LGBT media is and has always been uh, less paying, less secure, and it. Basically, does not have the usual perks that you might expect at, say, the New York Times or uh, a big television network. Um, these are these are struggling operations, and you know they serve a very important important purpose in our community. And the the point is that they are trying to be the voice of our community. But how can you be the voice of our community if there are members of our community who are suffering because of the actions they take? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, that's, that, you know, what, what, what really rocked my world is that if they really want to serve the transgender community or the bisexual community, don't just write a story about it. Don't create a hashtag. Don't give us some kind of lip service. Hire us. Put mm-hmm. more of these people in your newsroom. If you have trans people in your newsroom, if you have bisexual people in your newsroom, your coverage will get better because you'll have people who know what is going on in the community, writing about what's going on in our community. I'm not saying straight people can't write about LGBT, and I'm not saying gay people can't write about trans. Lots of my friends are straight and gay. But it adds a different flavor, it adds a different level of insight. When we are represented in the newsroom.
3: Yeah, I think that what I'm talking about also, you know, which if you pull back and you look at it from the big picture perspective, I hear it and I see it like all the time, like as a community, we're talking about transgender rights and transgender uh, uh, issues. As if we are all unified, uh, you know, in this fight for transgender Kumbaya. rights. Yeah, and then yeah. and then you know, then our actions say otherwise, right? And and so exactly. I get that you know, LGBTQ media. Hi, hello. I can't hire anybody, um, or you know, pay myself even. If you
6: were, I'd be <laughs> i on your case right now with a resume.
3: Right. But no, I agree. Right. I agree. but, and, but see, but we yeah. we also then shouldn't we need to be building much more sustainable. Uh, Businesses or organizations, if we're going to go out there and represent the entire community, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying that you know, huge publications like Querity, Advocate, you know, all those guys, you wouldn't be out there promoting as if you are the face of the community without you know transgender people, and you're profiting off the backs of the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're going to uh, build something like this, in my opinion. You need to make sure that there are enough finances or investments to prioritize those voices versus, um, I don't know, business meetings that don't make any financial sense.
6: Well, I'll give you two things. People have asked me, how do you know that they discriminated against you? Maybe they just, you know, got rid of two people and it didn't occur to them that, oh, they're the only trans people on the team. Well, my answer to that would be if they didn't know, they should know. Our job is to report on diversity and inclusion and on discrimination, and you need to look at the optics of it. If they're just dumb and they don't realize, gee, by letting these two go, we're letting go the only trans people on the team, then they're not really thinking. And it's not that I want to be labeled trans and I want to have a big T around my neck. It's that I can't hide it. I can't deny it. It is who I am, and it affects me economically. It affects the people I owe money to. I have bills. I have um, creditors. I have people who depend on me to be able to pay them. How am I going to pay them if I'm not being paid? And how do I report on the community fairly if I don't have people in the community who are part of that reporting team? I also like to just say that, you know, their trip, they told us a lot of things, like, you know, the the airfares were all subsidized by vouchers. In other words, the airline kicked back some free tickets so that they didn't have to pay for all the airfares from all over the country to Cabo San Lucas which was a business retreat we went on in late February. Uh, But who paid for the big party at an L.A. hotspot? Who paid for the hotel and the the villa that we stayed at that was $3,500 a night for four nights? Where did that money come from? And then how, six months later, do you say, oh, we have to cut the budget 30%? Well... Were you not paying attention when you are spending all that money for free wine and margaritas all day?
3: Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Miao Show right after these messages.
1: The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain. From James Hormel to Kate Kendall. Leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boies came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders.
0: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start?
3: (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, or another example is, I mean, again, I mentioned LGBTQ large organizations. If we have people who are making six-figure salaries and also spending, you know, uh, double digits um, on, on uh, parties and all this stuff to, in order to raise all this money, why are so many of us, or as a community, uh, the transgender community, you know, still face with such little resources and little support from our own circles. That's that's just my big question, and so I feel like your own personal experience, um, it really is like a, a, a representation of, of something else that's going on in our community that's a symptom of a much larger problem.
6: Not only that, but... Let's face it, I have white privilege. I used to have male-presenting privilege. So I'm very fortunate to have achieved the things I did in my career. I can only imagine how much harder it would be to be a trans woman of color. I can only imagine how much harder it is to be a journalist who is trying to break through, whose skin is what determines whether they get a job or not. So I have it pretty good on that front. I'm very lucky. So it doesn't mean I'm not suffering. It doesn't mean that I'm not struggling. It just means that our racist society... Gives me a step up that other people don't have, and it's been my job to try and raise up those voices of the even further marginalized than I am. Um, what I wish is, you know, all those big fundraisers that HRC and GLAD have, and those big ticket dinners. You know, I, I'm sure that money goes to helping um, preserve our rights, and I'm sure that money goes to helping candidates get elected on on this election day. It's very important that we vote um, progressive, but I would love to see some of that money go to the, trans women of color and the other marginalized folks who can't get a fricking chance to pay a bill. Uh, they can't pay rent. They can't do they can't get to three meals a day without a handout from somebody. And I wish there was more in our community that was established to help those people and me <laughs> just get by every day. I, I'm very lucky that I live in a community, that is very supportive. My town helped me pay my water bill. My uh, local uh, uh, house of worship helped me, uh, uh, feed my children with free groceries. I'm able to do those things thanks to very generous people who make a lot more than I am. But where's the the LGBT side of that? Where's Where's the helping hand that will help our community as we struggle to get through these very tough economic times? You know, the president says unemployment is way down since he got elected. No one's been saying what they used to say under Obama. How many of those people have just decided to give up and aren't in the workforce anymore? I'm one of them. I'm, I'm not giving up. I'm really close. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how I'm gonna. I don't know how I'm gonna get through the holidays. I really don't.
3: See, and that's that's the thing is I, I just think that we need to address. If we're going to address racism, we're gonna. If we're going to address transgender issues, if we're going to put all these issues within the community as if we are the leaders or at, uh, at least the people at the forefront of the equal rights movement, I think that you know we need to address the uh, problems that we face from within. Don, one last question for you. I mean, what now? I mean, what do you look forward to, and and what do you think that uh, young journalists out there, especially LGBTQ, no not just LGBTQ, but non-conforming, non-binary, transgender, um, what can they learn from your experience? The three things
6: I would say about that would be don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you've committed yourself to a life in journalism, if writing stories and telling truth is something that you want to do, make sure you have some other fallback. Maybe you should wait tables. Maybe you need to have a sales job. Maybe you need to do real estate. Maybe you just need to um, uh, work in your dad's office. Maybe there's something that your um, your relatives can help you with in terms of can you move in with them. Have some kind of safety net. Save up every penny. Don't go to eat. Learn how to cook. <laughs> do everything you can to save every frickin' penny. And learn every job you can. Don't just be a writer. Be a photographer. Be a videographer. Learn how to... Um, work the CMS, the content management system, learn how to be a super user, how do you get the system to work when it doesn't work, how do you fix the printer? All these things that will make you a better, more hireable person. And network, network, network. Right now, Mm -hmm. the only reason I even have work right now is because, thank goodness, there are people who know my writing and know my abilities, and despite the um, obstacles I face, they have said to me more than once, I'm a very resilient person, and I don't I don't let anything keep me down,
2: mm-hmm.
6: But, mm-hmm. but it's hard. Um, my oldest son, the uh, way going to college for a year, so he can help support my family. He's got three jobs to help me pay bills, and he's supposed to be sending money up for college, and instead he's making sure that the lights don't go out and the the, the you know the, the cell phones still work, so I can talk to you right now. So we have gas in the car. I mean... No woman, 53 years old, should be depending on her 18-year-old son to support herself and her two other children. It's just not fair to him. And my son uh, came out last year. My daughter came out last year. We're an LGBT family, um, and I feel like I'm 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 trying to show them that they can do anything, but it's it's very increasingly hard um, to do that. And all I wanted to say about that young person who's listening to this, thinking. Well, why should I do this? Because you love telling stories, and you never, ever lose that love. No matter how hard it is, just don't give up. And if I can be that person again who so many people have called me their anti-role model for all the, all the things I've, I've done in my life that have not gone exactly as I planned, please don't give up
2: mm-hmm. because
6: I, I do think better days are ahead. Somehow, some when, I'm, 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 I'm still here. And damn it, I'm not going away.
3: Yeah, and I love you for that, and I appreciate you so much for that courage. Uh, You know, something you said actually makes me want to ask one final last question. Um, Sure. And that is, you know, where do we go from here in terms of, uh, yes, exposing the bad practices of even um, companies, organizations within our own community like QWERTY, uh, do you think that you telling your story will hold them to a higher standard? Uh, I think so, yes. And I, I think that, you know where this comes from?
6: I wrote my own Me Too story last month, and I, I kept this secret for 40 friggin' years since I was a child model. I never wanted to tell anyone. I didn't tell my mother. I didn't tell my beloved. I didn't tell anyone, even a therapist. But I decided after reading the brave stories of people who said, enough, we have to stand up. I wrote my story, and then I thought about it today as it was the fifth month of me being unemployed, and I thought, why am I protecting anyone? Who am I helping? How is it going to make it better? So we have to be brave. The next step is for us to call out those who aren't on board, who aren't doing their jobs, who are letting us down, and that's why I did what I did.
3: Don, thank you so much for telling your story. If you'd like to read the entire Story written by Dawn and her sharing her personal experience, head to medium.com. And uh, you can look up the article by Dawn Ennis. Dawn, thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Meow Show. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to MichelleMeow.com. The Spotlight on Success and Achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts.
5: Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, Everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. uh, and now, to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life. But it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that, and this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets, I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a, a pretty simple life, I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far.
3: Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs.